Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Dean stood on the shore of the reservoir, studying the rhythm of the dimpled water as the waves met the rocky beach. It was a windy day, but a few feet from the shore, the lake was still enough to be clear. He watched closely for any carp moving beneath the surface. Dean baited his hook. He was going to catch something big today. He could feel it. A 20-pounder. Easy. With an experienced flick of his wrist, Dean cast a line, sending it far out into the lake. Then, something in the water caught his eye. Movement under the surface. A fish already? Dean took a few steps forward to get a better look, puzzled. It was too small to be carp. The next wave pushed the unidentified fish closer to him. It stopped at the shore, bobbing against the rocks. Then he realized it wasn't any kind of fish at all. Floating in the water was a woman's severed foot. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is our new podcast, Crimes of Passion, on the Parcast Network. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? Last week, we explored how a threesome developed between Harold and Ina Noakes and the much younger Kay Hine. When Kay called off the arrangement, Harold became violent. This week, we're looking at the action the Noakes took against Kay, the subsequent investigation, and the consequences. At Farcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com merch for more information. In March of 1973, after a nine-month menage a trois, 30-year-old Kay Hoyt Hine ended her relationship with 45-year-old Harold Noakes and his wife, 43-year-old Ina. Kay wanted Harold to divorce Ina and start a new life with her exclusively, but he refused. As a result, Kay broke off the tryst. She started sleeping with a handful of other men in their small town of McCook, Nebraska, making Harold jealous. He retaliated with a few acts of vandalism against her, including poisoning her lawn, pouring sugar in her gas tank, and graffitiing obscene messages about her and the new men in her life. Their rift escalated to a physical confrontation in late June of 1973. Ina tricked Kay into coming to their house by feigning an injury. It was a last-ditch effort by Harold to try to rekindle the relationship 
when he begged Kay to sleep with him, she fled the house. Harold chased after, but fell off the porch ledge, landing on his shoulder, severely injuring it. The fall rendered his right arm practically useless for several months. After this terrifying encounter, Kay cut off all contact with the Noxes. This only intensified Harold's angst over losing her. On September 23, 1973, almost six months after the affair ended, the situation between Kay and the Noxes came to a head. Harold discovered that Kay told her parents he was trying to blackmail her. The accusation didn't sit well with him. He wanted to speak with Wilma and Edwin Hoyt directly about the relationship with Kay and clear up some misconceptions. The Hoyt spent Sunday the 23rd with family, first at church, and then at their home for an early ham supper. They were joined by Kay, her two daughters, Kay's sister Donna, Donna's husband, and their four children. The Hoyts had just returned from a long vacation, and their family was excited to hear the details while they ate. Around 4 p.m., the children and grandchildren went home. The Noakes found only Edwin and Wilma when they came to the farm that night. What follows are the events of September 23rd, according to Harold Noakes' testimony. As a note, some parts of Harold's statement feel implausible and contradictory to the physical evidence, but for now, we will go off his version of events, as this is what is reflected in the official court record. Harold and Ina went out to eat the evening of the 23rd. Afterward, they drove to Colbertson, a town 15 miles over, to see Harold's parents. However, his parents weren't home that night, so instead, they went to the Hoyt Farm, also in Colbertson, to pay Kay's parents a visit and clear the air. It's unclear why the Hoyt's approval was so important to Harold or why he thought it would help him in his continued pursuit of Kay. Though Kay and her parents were close, they didn't have any influence over the men she was seeing. In the months prior to this late-night visit, Harold had been obsessed with convincing Kay to return to the affair. Just a note before we continue, I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Suzanne Lackman, this type of bargaining after a breakup is common. Many people will promise anything to regain the relationship and make the pain of the breakup go away. Lackman states that at this stage in the grieving process, your capacity for reason and judgment are significantly impaired. Around 9 p.m. on September 23, 1973, there was a knock on the Hoyt's back door. When Edwin went to answer it, he was shocked to find Harold and Ina Noakes asking to come inside and talk. Edwin couldn't see that tucked into Harold's waistband was a 22 caliber Ruger pistol hidden by his jacket. He agreed to let them in. But the Noakeses didn't stay at the farm long. Instead, Harold and Ina asked the Hoyts to come back with them to their house in McCook. Harold would drive Edwin and Wilma in his car so they could talk more along the way. Ina would follow behind, driving the Hoyts' car. Then, Harold wanted Kay to join them there where everyone would discuss matters fully. According to James Hewitt's book on the Noakeses in Cold Storage, Kay had hired a babysitter the night of the 23rd to stay with her girls, telling the sitter that she was waiting for a call from a friend to go out. The babysitter arrived at 6.30 p.m., but by 9.30 p.m., Kay still hadn't received a call and sent the babysitter home. When investigators later asked her who she was waiting to get a call from, she was extremely evasive and never gave a definitive reason as to why she hired a sitter but never went out. During the drive over, Harold and Edwin discussed the supposed blackmail further. Harold continued to deny the accusations, making Edwin upset. When they arrived at the Noakes' house, Harold parked in the driveway and Ina parked the Hoyt's car behind it. Edwin slammed the passenger door shut and started shouting, calling Harold a liar. Afraid the noise would draw the attention of the neighbors, 
Harold suggested they all go inside and down to the basement. Harold brought Edwin into the kitchen, showing him the steps down to the basement. Edwin continued to bluster as he followed Harold down and into the laundry room. Ina and Wilma also came down to the basement, but stayed in the family room portion, away from their arguing husbands. They watched on as Edwin declared he'd heard enough from Harold. He placed his glasses on the washing machine and pulled up his sleeves. Edwin cocked his right fist and charged. Harold fired on Edwin without any kind of warning, hitting him in the chest and killing him. At the sound of the shot, Wilma ran, heading for the stairs. Harold rushed out of the laundry room and fired on Wilma. She fell, dead, at the base of the steps. Ina stepped over her to dash upstairs and check if the neighbors had heard the commotion, leaving Harold in the basement. Harold stood motionless in the basement, his heartbeat pounding in his ears. He watched as the blood puddle around Edwin's body continued to slowly spread across the laundry room floor. When the pool reached the grate, it seeped through the small metal holes, draining into the pipe. The sound of the steady dripping was deafening to Harold. What had he done? Ina came back downstairs. She didn't think any of the neighbors had heard the gunshots. They were safe, for now. Harold took a small bit of relief in the news, but fear still churned within him. He took a few steps towards his wife, but his stomach sloshed. He was going to be sick. He barely managed to grab the sides of the sink before emptying his guts into it. Ina tried to help clean him up, but he pushed her away, flush with shame. Oh, Ina, he didn't want her to be blamed for any of this. She shouldn't even be in the house. Get out of here now, he said. Just leave me. I'll call the cops. Tell them what I've done. He suggested a few alibi ideas for her. Maybe her sister would help, but Ina refused, shaking her head. She wasn't going anywhere. Harold and Ina could be sent to prison for this, and they had their children to think of. They couldn't ruin their lives like this, making them the son and daughter of murderers. Harold considered this silently. She was right. The bodies could never be found. Harold knew what to do. He turned to his wife. I need a knife. A big one. When faced with the choice between calling the authorities or hiding the murder, the Noxes chose the latter. But Harold was hobbled by his shoulder injury from June, effectively one-handed. He didn't think he would be able to carry both Edwin and Wilma up the basement stairs. He decided that the only course of action was to dismember them into more manageable pieces. Using the fire axe from his work truck and a butcher knife from the kitchen, Harold cut apart first Edwin and then Wilma. They wrapped the pieces in butcher paper that they normally use for deer meat and sealed them with masking tape. This was bloody, gruesome work, but the Noxes were experienced hunters and had decades of experience field dressing their game. When they were later questioned by investigators, Harold and Ina were able to describe the evisceration process in detail, step by step. It's possible that because of their previous repeated exposure to this kind of work, though on deer, they could compartmentalize their actions. In an article called Understanding Emotional Compartmentalization, Clinical social worker Rachel G. Baldino defines compartmentalization as consciously or subconsciously suppressing or sectioning off upsetting thoughts and emotions in order to justify engaging in certain, sometimes questionable, behaviors. If they were able to pretend that this was just another field dressing, it may have made it easier for them to decide to dismember the Hoyts. The Noxes worked through the night to hide their crime. They removed the blood-stained clothing and embedded bullets from the bodies. 
they were unable to remove a unique, ornate ring from one of Wilma's fingers, which were swollen from arthritis, but wrapped the arm in paper nonetheless. They decided to keep the parts in the basement freezer, underneath some meat already being stored there, until they had a chance to dispose of them. Harold filled a cardboard box with the Hoyt's clothing, a bloody rug from the bottom of the stairs, their own incriminating clothes, and Wilma's purse, then stashed the box in his work truck. Ina drove the Hoyt's car to St. Catherine's Hospital and parked it on the street. Harold drove to Massacre Canyon to dispose of the viscera that couldn't be wrapped in paper, as well as the bullets. Back home, Ina started cleaning the basement, using a hose to spray down the concrete laundry room floor. Around 8 a.m. on September 24th, roughly 10 hours after the murder, they both went to work, assuming the patterns of a regular day, all the while disposing of more evidence. Harold had one of his crew start a controlled trash fire at the Roads Department depot to burn some rotted guardrail posts. On his way to the depot, Harold stopped at Trenton Lake and threw Edwin's glasses and wallet into the water. When he reached the depot, he sent the crew who had been tending to the fire to a different job. He slipped the cardboard box with the bloody clothes and Wilma's purse into the fire unnoticed. On his way home, he tossed the fire axe into Frenchman Creek. That night, once it got dark, Harold and Ina loaded up the frozen packages into large plastic garbage bins. They stored the bins in the trunk of their car, hitched up their boat, and drove 35 miles to Harry's Trunk Lake, despite a light drizzling rain. When they reached the reservoir, they put the bins onto the boat and motored to the middle of the water. After confirming it was deserted, they unwrapped the body parts and dropped them into the lake along with the butcher knife. When they got back to shore, they started a fire and burned all of the blood-stained wrapping paper. Then they returned home to wait. Coming up, the Noxes try to avoid detection as police investigate the disappearance of the Hoyts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. On September 23rd, 1973, Harold and Ina Noakes paid a visit to Edwin and Wilma Hoyt, the parents of their former lover, Kay Hine. Harold just wanted to talk to the Hoyts, clear the air, but their conversation escalated to murder. Kay Hine tried calling her parents several times on Monday, September 24th, the day after the Noakes' late night visit. Unable to reach them, she asked a neighbor to go check on the house. They reported that the doors were locked and the Hoyt's car was gone, but there were no tire tracks. It had rained earlier that morning and the driveway was unpaved, so any car coming or going would have left impressions in the mud. Kay called her sister Donna to relay her fears that Edwin and Wilma were missing. 
but the farm was vast with several acres of pasture. Perhaps they were there, just not at the house. Maybe they'd driven their car out to check on one of the grazing herds of cows. Donna, who was working on earning her pilot's license, said she would fly over the property the next day and look for them. On Tuesday, she made the flight, but didn't see any trace of their parents. After landing, Kay and Donna returned to the farmhouse. Kay remembered a hide key, so they unlocked the door and went inside. The ham pam from Sunday's family dinner was still soaking in the sink. Wilma and Edwin's unworn pajamas were laid out on the still-made bed. Edwin's wallet and Wilma's purse were gone, but her daily arthritis medication was still there. According to Hewitt's In Cold Storage, Kay was distressed throughout the search of the house. She told Donna repeatedly that she knew something awful would happen to their parents. She insisted they search under the beds, in closets, in the barn, any place no one would think to look. But they found nothing to indicate where the Hoyts had gone. The other Hoyt children and relatives were soon alerted to the disappearance and summoned to Nebraska. They informed the police as well. But as there were not yet any signs that a crime had actually been committed, there wasn't much authorities could do. The children decided to hire a private investigator to assist the search for Edwin and Wilma Hoyt. Their desire to involve someone outside the local police may have been motivated by the handling of another case. Earlier that year, on April 25, 1973, Firemen were called to the McCook home of 80-year-old Ida Fitzgibbons after neighbors reported smoke coming from inside. They found Ida dead, strangled and stabbed, the knife left jutting out from her chest. Responding officers said that it was very obviously a homicide, but the final report a few weeks later listed the cause of death as a suicide. There was an outcry from local residents at these findings but no further action was taken. With such a gross mishandling of an investigation fresh in their minds, the Hoyt children hired private investigator Robert Sodden for a rate of $150 a day. Sodden was a World War II vet and retired police officer from Lincoln, Nebraska, who now worked as a PI. He was known for being an excellent interrogator. Sodden arrived in McCook on Monday, October 1st, a week after the Hoyts were first thought to be missing, and quickly got up to speed. As he spoke with different members of the family, Kay's relationship with Harold and the several acts of vandalism that summer dominated the conversation. Everyone, including Kay, believed Harold was somehow involved in Edwin and Wilma's disappearance. The next day, October 2nd, Sonnen asked the police to contact Harold Noakes for questioning. Through his long police career in nearby Lincoln, Nebraska, Sonnen was already acquainted with most of the officers in the McCook area. They trusted his judgment and allowed him to participate in their investigation, though at this point, local police still weren't certain a crime had been committed. Harold and Sonnen spoke for almost two hours, primarily about Kay and the graffiti. Harold admitted to the affair, confirming that it started in early 1970 and ended in March of 1973, but left out Ina's involvement. He told Sodden that Ina might have suspected he was cheating, but the couple never talked about it. Kay hadn't mentioned Ina either, so Sodden had no reason to press the matter. Harold also denied writing any of the graffiti, he said he'd had to clean up plenty as part of his roads department job, but wasn't the author. Sonnen asked more than once if Harold would sit for a polygraph, but he declined each time. As Harold was leaving, Sonnen made it clear that he would want to speak with him again. Sonnen left the interview frustrated. He could tell there was more to the story of Kay and the Noakeses, but so far, no one was talking. Luckily for Sodden, a discovery the next day would completely change the scope of his investigation. 
In the early afternoon of October 3rd, McCook local Dean McQuiety was fishing for carp at Harry Strunk Lake when something in the water caught his eye. He quickly realized it was a woman's severed foot. He retrieved it and set it on the bank, then ran to the lake supervisor's office. The supervisor alerted the sheriff. While they waited for the authorities, Dean and the lake supervisor did a cursory search. Not far from the foot, they found a woman's arm, severed below the elbow. On one finger was a ring with five multicolored stones. The supervisor left the second discovery on the shore until Sheriff Lonnie Robley arrived. Over the course of the late afternoon, six more body parts, male and female, were discovered, as well as a large piece of skin with what appeared to be a bullet hole in it. By 6 p.m. on October 3rd, it was getting too dark to continue. Robley sent his team home and delivered the body parts to the mortuary. There, they were photographed and examined. They took fingerprints from the two discovered hands. The examining physician determined that the bodies had been dismembered after death and had probably been wrapped in paper based on the fibrous material found on the ring. The ring, being quite unique, was shown to the local jeweler. He recognized it immediately as one he had custom-made for Wilma Hoyt. One of the Hoyt children also confirmed that the ring belonged to their mother. This was no longer a missing persons case, but a double homicide. Police continued to discover body parts over the next few days. Embarrassed that they had been slow to act on the Hoyts' disappearance, they threw all their resources into the murder investigation. Robert Sodden was more and more convinced that Kay wasn't telling him the whole truth. She had been acting erratically since her parents went missing. According to Hewitt's In Cold Storage, late one night, she woke up her daughters and insisted they move to another room in the house to sleep. After a few hours, she moved them again back to their own bedroom. In addition, one of the family members gathered up all of the medication in the house into a gallon-sized Ziploc bag and gave it to Kay's sister-in-law for safekeeping. Kay had been hospitalized twice before for depressive episodes, and in April of 1973, only a few months before her parents' deaths, she had feigned a suicide attempt, sometimes called a parasuicide, or a suicidal gesture. As stated in the primary care physician's guidelines for managing suicide attempts, these behaviors are viewed as different from a true attempt in which there is a clear intent and expectation of death. However, gestures can also lead to death when there are miscalculations or unexpected effects of the harmful behavior. In addition, it is difficult and sometimes impossible to discern accurately the patient's intent. As a result, parasuicides or gestures should be taken seriously. Kay's sister-in-law was given explicit instructions to keep the Ziploc full of pills away from Kay. On October 11th, fearing that the investigation was stalling, Robert Sodden confronted Kay. He could tell that she had been holding back details in some of their conversations. Kay finally explained the full extent of the affair with Harold Noakes and how his wife Ina had also come to be involved. She told him how Harold had threatened her after the breakup, telling her that she'd be sorry. Sodden immediately brought Kay to the police station to make an official statement. When officers heard this new information, they decided to pick up Harold and Ina for questioning. When the Noakeses arrived at the station, Sodden placed them in two separate rooms. He questioned Ina while Lieutenant Donald Grebe spoke to Harold. When Sodden asked Ina about the relationship with Kay Hine, she denied everything. Throughout the interview, she was icy and monosyllabic. Sodden then brought Kay Hine into the room asking her to repeat her statement about the threesome, hoping to provoke a response from Ina. But as Kay recounted their sexual escapades in graphic detail, 
Ina never flinched. She defiantly brushed off Sodden. He couldn't prove anything Kay said. Next door, Grieb had better luck with Harold. He confirmed the details of Kay's statement on the menage a trois. With Ina's refusals, it was two against one. Sodden tried to leverage that to his advantage. He instructed Grieb to bring Harold into the other interrogation room. As Harold followed Lieutenant Grieb through the police station, he was careful to keep his expression flat. So far, Grieb was only asking questions about Kay and the graffiti, nothing about Edwin and Wilma, and Harold wanted it to stay that way. There were rumors that police were searching the lake, and he knew what they would find there. Grieb opened another door and casually motioned for Harold to step inside. Ina was seated across from an investigator, her jaw set, arms crossed against her chest, an angry brick wall. Harold turned to Grieb and demanded to know what was going on, but he just shrugged, deferring to the other investigator. Harold searched Dina's face, trying to determine which version of the truth he should tell. When he hesitated, Grieb cajoled him. Go on, Harold. Just tell him what you told me, what Kay said. At the mention of his mistress's name, Ina glared at Harold, full of spite. Why had he involved her in this mess? Grieb tried to prod him again to talk about the threesome, to repeat what he had said before. Ina sighed and closed her eyes. God, how he'd disappointed her. Harold took a step toward the door. He said he didn't know what Grieb was talking about. He hadn't said anything about Kay. The investigator glowered. He referred to his notes, reading Harold's words back to him. But Harold shook his head, resolute. I don't recall saying any of those things. Grieb seethed. He took Harold's arm to escort him out of the room. As he passed by his wife, Harold could see a smile at the corners of her mouth. Good, he thought. For once, he'd done right by her. Grieb hammered Harold over his recanting. A truculent Harold accused Grieb of trying to confuse and double-cross him. He asked if Harold had taken the Hoyt's bodies to Harry Strunk Lake in his boat. Harold denied it, then said he thought he should call a lawyer. But Grieb continued. Did he shoot the Hoyt's? Harold said, no. Did Ina shoot the Hoyts? This made Harold even angrier, and he vehemently denied the accusation. He was adamant that Ina was in no way involved with anything, not with the Hoyts, not with Kay. Grieb continued to press Harold, but he shook his head and refused to say another word. He demanded to call a lawyer. Coming up, the police try to elicit a confession from Harold Noakes. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Now, back to the story. On October 11th, 1973, police had a major break in the murder investigation of Edwin and Wilma Hoyt. Their daughter's ex-boyfriend, 45-year-old Harold Noakes, was now their prime suspect. But... He was refusing to answer any more questions without a lawyer. Lieutenant Grieb showed him to the phone. 
but it was not in a place that Harold could have a private conversation. Even though Grebe offered to step away, Harold declined to make the call. Instead, he asked Grebe why he thought Harold was involved in the Hoyts' deaths. Grebe gave him a few details from the investigation that pointed towards him. Harold then asked about different aspects of murder charges versus manslaughter and the sentencing associated with each. Grebe treated the conversation like a chess match. As he answered Harold's legal questions, he tried to elicit more details about the murder from him. They talked for another two hours. Harold didn't say anything that could be interpreted as a confession, but at the end of the conversation, he and Ina were arrested. The next day, the Noakes' lawyer challenged their incarceration. Police agreed to place them under house arrest instead. They could stay with their daughter while police continued their investigation as their own home was now considered a crime scene. When they were released, Harold told Sheriff Robley, I belong in jail, but my wife doesn't. Surprisingly, no one followed up on that statement, but it does give us a hint of Harold's mindset. Already at this juncture, he was thinking about ways to protect Ina. Police searched the Noakes' house the same day. They found a bloody nightgown and dried blood in the laundry room floor drain. However, the blood on the nightgown turned out to be menstrual and the blood in the drain had come from an animal. They found nothing to directly link the Noakes to the Hoyts' murder. Feeling that the investigation was in trouble, Robert Sodden organized a strategy meeting on October 26 with Sheriff Robley, Lieutenant Grebe, and District Attorney Fred Schroeder. Given the lack of physical evidence, their only hope to convict the Noakes was to elicit a confession. They consulted a forensic psychologist on the best way to do this. He recommended keeping the Noakes apart from each other to deprive them of a mutual support system. The psychologist cited the fact that Harold had recanted his statement about the threesome after being confronted with his wife. If kept away from her, he might crack under the pressure. But after their brief period of house arrest, a judge had granted the Noakes' request to return home and police currently had no legal cause to keep them separate. Sodden's next move was particularly strange, though certainly creative. He found a woman who greatly resembled Wilma Hoyt and, with the permission of the children, dressed her in some of Wilma's clothes. He then brought the lookalike to a diner and sat her at the counter next to Ina while she was eating lunch, trying to provoke a reaction. But Ina was once again unflappable, never batting an eye in the doppelganger's direction. Weeks passed without any significant movement in the case. Sonnen asked Schroeder to file an application to place a listening device in the Noakes' home. Judge Jack Hendricks granted the order on November 21st, though noted in his ruling that some elements of the required probable cause could be considered hearsay. No one else could corroborate Kay's statement that Harold threatened her after breaking up, telling her she'd be sorry. Nevertheless, police bugged the house on December 3, 1973, while the Noakes were at work, placing one device in a light fixture in the living room and another in a bedroom lamp. They were almost discovered that same night, as the bug in the living room interfered with the TV's reception. When the Noakes called a TV repairman about the issue, police had to intercept him. Luckily, he fixed the reception without letting on to their surveillance. Tapes recorded the Noakes' conversations continuously for almost three weeks. The police had been hoping for a smoking gun confession as it was their strongest avenue to get a conviction. But Harold and Ina said virtually nothing about Edwin or Wilma. They did discuss the possibility that one or both of them might be charged with murder. Rather than go to prison or the electric chair, Harold and Ina made a suicide pact. According to the Marshall Project, 
Jailhouse suicide among first-time offenders is relatively common, with a rate of 46 suicides per 100,000 in 2013, often happening even before a conviction is official. The fear of jail is enough to push them to act. Harold and Ina each started carrying a cache of codeine-based pills. If they were arrested, they would take their pills and end their lives. Through the bug, investigators heard them come up with a code phrase so that even if they were separated, they could communicate through their lawyer and let the other one know it was time to die. Finally, a week into the bugging, Harold mentioned to Ina, we should have removed the rings. Police found this extremely significant, as it was Wilma's unique ring that had allowed police to identify the bodies in the first place, and this damning detail had not been released to the public. With these revelations, DA Fred Schroeder filed first-degree murder charges. On December 20, 1973, Sheriff Robley arrested Harold and Ina Noakes. Harold was taken to the Frontier County Jail, this facility did not accommodate female inmates, so Ina was taken to the Lincoln County Jail in North Platte, an hour away. Aware of their suicide pact from the wiretaps, police searched their belongings and confiscated 53 codeine pills from Harold and 81 pills from Ina, though neither was aware that the other's escape route had also been foiled. With over 60 miles between the couple, it was time to test the forensic psychologist's theory. Sodden and Robley waited for Harold Noakes to crack. The first night in jail, Harold's blood pressure spiked so high they had to call a doctor. It took twice the normal dose of medication to stabilize him. To isolate Harold, Robley instructed the other police officers not to speak to him and that Robley would be the only one to bring him his meals. The sheriff also made a poster of the Miranda rights warning and hung it on a wall where Harold would be able to see it from his cell. Anytime he started talking to Robley about the case, he'd point to the sign to remind Harold that what he said could be used against him in court. After a few days, Harold was in bad shape, not eating or sleeping and looking visibly haggard. On the fourth day, he popped out one of the lenses from his glasses and attempted to slit his wrist with it. Robley stepped in when he heard Harold trying to sharpen the edge of the lens on the concrete floor, but not before he had been able to draw blood. On December 27th, after a week in jail, Robley sensed that Harold was at a breaking point. Having personally listened to hours upon hours of tapes from the Noakes' home, Robley knew the arranged phrase they determined for their suicide pact. After Harold's lawyer left that day, Robley checked in. He delivered the coded message, telling him the lawyer mentioned Ina had complained of back pain when he saw her. Robley could tell from Harold's face that he believed his wife was dead. Harold had known once Ina suggested the pills that it was the right decision. And it wasn't the guilt of what he'd done. No, he could face that, but not Ina. Ina, faithful Ina, deserved none of what he'd put her through. He'd forced her to share her bed with another woman. He'd allowed her name to be dragged through the muck. He'd made her an accomplice. Harold pictured her in the garish orange jumpsuit, shackled, only able to speak through a pane of glass. But now, she was free. God bless you, Ina. He wouldn't meet her in heaven anytime soon, not without his pills, and he was probably going to the devil anyway. She was at peace. His hell was beginning. For a moment, he was consumed by a truly evil notion. Maybe Ina's death was the answer he'd been waiting for. Only the two of them knew what had happened at the Hoyt farm that night. He could tell any story he wanted with her gone. Maybe it was Ina's idea all along. 
Maybe it was Ina who pulled the trigger. Who would know? He winced, even just thinking about it. You gutless coward. Ina. Ina would know. His angel, Ina. Don't let her be buried a murderer. He had only one choice. To clear her name. It was the last kind thing he could do for her. He called Robley over to his cell. He was ready to talk about the Hoyts. Whether he actually believed Ina was dead, as Sheriff Robley suggested, Harold did confess to the sheriff that night. He calmly detailed the events of September 23rd and 24th, the murders of the Hoyts, the dismemberment, and the disposal, as we heard earlier in the episode. As he spoke, Robley said he could see the relief wash over Harold's face, the weight being lifted from him. The change in him was so dramatic, Robley called the doctor back to take his blood pressure again. Throughout his confession, he repeatedly denied any involvement on Ina's part, other than wrapping the body parts and helping him dispose of them in the lake. Robley called Sonnen and Schroeder and told them that Harold had confessed. His attorney arranged a plea bargain. Harold would be charged with one count of first-degree murder for Wilma and one count of second-degree murder for Edwin. Ina would be charged with two counts of improperly disposing of a body. Now aware that Ina was still alive, Harold continued to protect her. When asked to repeat his confession for the official record, he confirmed three times within the first 15 minutes that no matter what he said in his confession, the charges against Ina couldn't be changed. He wouldn't say anything else unless they reassured him. He then described the events of September 23, 1973, just as he had to Robley. As mentioned previously, Harold's recorded confession is riddled with improbabilities. Let's start with the night of the murder. Harold said they went out to eat, then continued to his parents' house. He insisted that they decided to go to the Hoyt farm only after realizing his parents weren't home. But if this were true, why did Harold have the 22 Ruger with him? He told police that he brought the gun for protection against Edwin in case there was trouble. Because his shoulder was still injured, he feared that Edwin would overpower him if tempers flared. But Harold said he went directly from his parents to the Hoyt farm, so he must have already had the gun with him. This implies he intended to visit the Hoyts regardless of his parents being home. Once at the farm, why did the Noakeses insist they all drive 15 miles back to their house in McCook? Even if they wanted Kay to join them, why couldn't she come to the farm? We also know that Kay hired a babysitter for the night. Why was she never summoned to join, and why was she unwilling to tell investigators who she planned to meet? Had she known that Harold planned to visit her parents? She told her sister Donna that she was certain something bad had happened to her parents the next day. One of the biggest improbabilities is Harold's description of Edwin's death. He claimed that Edwin charged him from three feet away. In self-defense, Harold pulled the gun out from his waistband and shot him. However, in the short time that it would have taken Edwin to close the distance between them, there's no way that Harold or even Wild Bill Hickok could have removed the gun, turned off the safety, and fired using only his left hand. Remember, his right arm was injured and useless. It's also unlikely that Harold would have kept the gun in his belt with the safety off at the risk it would accidentally fire. Harold also claimed that Ina was in no way involved in the dismemberment, only the wrapping and disposal. But again, Harold was effectively one-handed. He described a process of gripping the fire axe halfway up the handle and swinging it down to sever the heads and limbs from the bodies, then using a butcher knife to further break the pieces down. But even with a fire axe, it would take a great deal of strength to make these cuts. 
Combined with the concrete laundry room floor, the axe would have dangerously bounced back with each swing, and it would have taken many swings. All of these inconsistencies were either overlooked or ignored by investigators. All they really tell us is that Edwin and Wilma's death could not have happened in the way described. Considering Harold was confessing to two murders that had horrified the small town of McCook, investigators probably preferred an inaccurate confession and closing the case to trying to tease out the knots in Harold's statement. With Harold's confession, the case was closed, and Harold and Ina were charged with the crimes laid out by the plea bargain. On February 14, 1974, Ina was sentenced to five years in prison. Two weeks later, Harold was sentenced to two life sentences, served back to back. Ina was released on parole after serving two years of her sentence on June 8, 1976. She moved to Lincoln, Nebraska to be closer to her son. Until his death in 2017, she visited Harold in Nebraska State Penitentiary twice a week. Kay Hoyt-Hein left McCook with no warning late one night in January 1974, before Harold and Ina had even been officially sentenced. A friend drove her and her daughters to Kansas, where they then took a bus to Denver and a train to California. She severed all ties to her friends and family in Nebraska and has not returned to McCook since. As we close out this episode, we want to acknowledge the many sources that informed our writing with a special thanks to James Hewitt, the author of In Cold Storage, Sex and Murder on the Plains. His extensive investigation of the Hoyts murder was critical to the making of this episode. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.